find ourselves in the presence of God. When all of the signs indicate that God is the majestic one, the almighty one, the all-powerful one, what do we do when the room shakes and fills with smoke and we realize that God is here? What do we do when, like Isaiah, we stand before God and realize that we are unclean, polluted, if you will, and we realize that by being in the presence of God, unclean and polluted, we are in big trouble fast. Or as Isaiah would say, we are ruined. What do we do when we realize there is a God to whom we will give account and to whom we will answer? What do we do when we realize there is no response to that God? that can justify us or make us right. What do we do when we find ourselves in the presence of God and find ourselves unclean and polluted? Well, we wanna talk about that today. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. So glad you could join us today. And there really are good solutions to those problems in the Bible. Well, or maybe I should say A, good solution. And we want to look at that, and we want to look at the story of Isaiah, and then we want to look at another place in the New Testament that gives us some insights so that we can know how to live our lives in the midst of a world that, well, all around us is polluted, but we don't want that pollution in us. What do we do when we find that we need help? Is there any hope when we stand before God, who is all-powerful, and as Isaiah's story tells us, is holy? Well, this is Faith Is, and we're exploring issues and questions of faith through the lens of the Bible. And I want to thank my friends at Diplomat Church in Cape Coral, Florida, because they make this possible, encourage us to spend this time together. We here at our church do this for you, and we're glad to do that. We really do hope you find it helpful. That's the idea. And we really do want to focus on what the Bible says. You know, we find ourselves in these times hearing from all kinds of sources about all kinds of things, and we want to focus on what does the Bible say to us today? How can it help us live our lives? What information do we need from God so that we can find ourselves in the right place when we stand before God? It's a challenging thing. We don't want to get distracted by this idea or that idea. We, we don't want to be led astray or deceived. We want to come to the Bible and approach it as though God has something there for us, something that we can understand, and something that we can make part of our lives so that we who, like Isaiah, recognize our uncleanness so we can be made clean, we can be made whole, we can stand before a holy God. So we're going to turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 6, and it's really quite a fascinating story, and, and I hope you use your your imagination a little bit when you read these stories and when you hear them. I hope you'll visualize what's going on, because I'm convinced that God gave us stories in the Bible to help us see beyond a simple prose explanation, but to help us use the right kind of imagination to really get a handle on and a glimpse of and a grip on all that God wants us to see. And sometimes we can't get that merely from a description. We need to get that from imagining and seeing in our mind's eye exactly what God is showing us. So here we are in Isaiah chapter 6, and I want to read a little bit of that chapter, the first eight verses, 
from the New International Version. It's probably the one that, that I use most often these days, but it's not the only one. And whatever English translation you use, take a look at it and let's consider what God is saying to us through the story of Isaiah, through Isaiah's encounter with God as, told, as he told it to us in chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, and the I here is Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted, seating on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. The temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to, the, to, flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Classic statement from Isaiah there. Here am I, send me. I wonder if you're brave enough to say that. I wonder if you're prepared to say that. Well, we want to get there. We want to take a look at these stories and these thoughts from Isaiah and then later from Romans. But let's kind of take a look here and see what's going on. Isaiah gives us the time that this took place, the year that King Uzziah died. And it's real interesting, the contrast, when you think about how Isaiah identifies the death of a king but at the same time, he says he saw the true king, the living God. And the living God is described as high and exalted, which would have been expected, seated on a throne, another visual image of a king. So that would help Isaiah, it would help us to realize what's going on here. And it talks about how his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. Now, that's an interesting visual because... I guess what it says to us is that Isaiah saw this immense God. One man put it, this giant of a God was so all-encompassing that he filled the temple. Uh, uh, an amazing thing to think that this, that this visual that Isaiah sees is, is actually filling the temple. Now, we don't know exactly how Isaiah may have thought of this. We do know that that there seemed to be in the understanding of people and in our understanding as we look at this, a correspondence between the Jerusalem temple and God's celestial palace that's described here. And the NIV calls it a temple. And, and yet other English translations use instead of temple, the word palace. So it's kind of overlapping in our understanding a little bit. So, so we get a visual idea of this temple or palace where God is actually filling the whole place. Uh, that really probably doesn't surprise us because God is big enough to fill any space he chooses to fill. And so here's this king high and lifted up, exalted, 
And above the king, Isaiah describes seraphim. Now, this is the only place in the Bible where these creatures are described and, and actually have a role to play. It's very interesting that, that the word seraph in the original language refers to a burning one. Well, I, we don't know exactly what that means here, but we do know, because we read the story, that, that a live coal comes into play or something that's burning. So above, above God, as I see, Isaiah sees him, are these seraphim. They have six wings each. Two of their wings cover their faces, two of their wings cover their feet, and two of their wings are used to fly. It's very interesting that, that it says two of their wings were used to cover their faces. Later on, Isaiah talks about how he was undone because he had seen God. Here, these seraphim, whatever type of beings they are, they cover their faces because it's apparently they don't dare to look at God. That's a, a little glimpse of the majestic nature of God and what's going on here, that they wouldn't even look at God. They covered their faces in his presence. And they're calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And while they're saying this, the sound of their voices shake the doorposts and thresholds of that room. The temple, that celestial palace, if you will, is filled with smoke. And it reminds us, and again, here's why I think it's so interesting that God uses these visual images. It reminds us of when God encountered his people at Sinai. It's very similar to what went on there, the, the loud noise from Sinai here. There's a, a loudness to their voices, and they shake the doorposts and the thresholds. The same way the mountain at Sinai would shake because the Lord came near, and there was a huge volume of smoke at Mount Sinai. And here it describes the temple, this heavenly palace filling with smoke. So it gives us a connection between the way God reveals himself in different places in the Bible. And so here we see this really dramatic display accompanied by this remarkable statement that the seraphim call to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it's important to notice that that the nature of the scene that Isaiah is describing and of what the seraphim are calling to one another sets the Lord apart. He is holy. He is set apart. He is the sovereign ruler of the world, elevated to a high position and described as holy. He's described as almighty, powerful. So we quickly get the idea that this is not anything ordinary. This is remarkable. It's also real interesting and should not go unnoticed that they describe him as holy three times. Now, typically when words like holy are repeated in the scriptures, that is a repetition for emphasis. So they want to make sure we don't miss this important observation that the Lord Almighty is holy. Now, what that also says about the Lord is that he has a moral authority. He is set apart from the rest of his subjects, and he has a moral authority characterized by holiness. All of his subjects 
fall short of that. Perhaps that's why the seraphim covered their faces, because they recognized that he was the supreme one. And so they understand that he is the one both supreme and with the highest of moral authority. He is the holy one. So what would you do when you're standing in the presence of someone who is obviously all-powerful, who can accomplish his purposes whenever he wishes, who rises above all of creation, who has a moral authority that is unmatched and separates him from all of the rest of creation? Well, Isaiah has a response, all right. Isaiah's response, his very human response, very understandable responses, is quite amazing and remarkable and, and chilling. What other response could there be? But Isaiah says in verse 5 of, of Isaiah chapter 6, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah says, I am ruined. Well, that's the correct human response when coming face to face with the Lord God Almighty, with the realization that here is one who is holy that rises above all of his subjects. What other response could we say than we don't begin to measure up? We are in big trouble fast. Isaiah recognizes this, and he also recognizes why. And not only did he say, I'm ruined, but he explains that the reason he is ruined is because he is a man of unclean lips. Now, this likely refers to a ceremonial uncleanness that required purification. Uh, Golden Gay, in his translation of the Old Testament, Old Testament, you may be familiar with it, it's called the First Testament. He describes it not as unclean lips, but as polluted lips. Same idea. And Isaiah goes further to say, not only is he a man of unclean lips, but he lives among a people of unclean lips. He realizes the distinction between a holy God who has the highest of moral authority and himself and the people around him who, frankly, are unclean. They don't measure up. Uh, another person who translates the, the text here says that that when Isaiah says he's ruined, it means he's undone. It refers to his realization that he's unworthy. Uh, I suppose unworthy to be in the presence of God, unworthy to be a prophet of God, which we will see Isaiah becomes in this passage a little bit later. But he's clearly, Isaiah is clearly recognizing that he has big problems and there's a big gap between him and God. He's ruined. He's unclean. He has polluted lips. Now, it's also interesting that, that this is the problem that the passage focuses on. Isaiah also says that in relation to his being ruined, that he, that he sees the Lord. And so that's a serious problem because we know in the scriptures that, that people weren't allowed to see God. We know in this passage, in the context, that the seraphim covered their eyes to avoid looking at God. A, a real problem, for sure, many places in the text of the Scripture. Interesting here that, that God does not address that problem. It's not brought into play, but the pollution of his lips clearly is. Now, that could be 
because of Isaiah's commissioning to be a prophet of God. We don't know all of the reasons why it's not mentioned, but it's interesting to notice that Isaiah focuses on that uncleanness of lips and that that uncleanness is what God addresses to solve in Isaiah's life. It's also interesting that while Isaiah recognizes his problem, it's as though he feels silenced because of his unqualification, because he is not, clearly is not qualified, even to join in the heavenly praise that the seraphim are calling out, holy, holy, holy. He clearly doesn't think he should be a part of that. And yet the seraphim continue to, to honor God and to praise God. So here's the problem. A high and holy God lifted up who is so immense that he fills the entire confines of the temple of this heavenly palace. And Isaiah is there, is privileged to see this vision, but recognizes in that privileged moment that he is in real big trouble that he is undone, he is ruined, and something has to be done. So he makes the right response because he realizes what he needs. But then it's real interesting that God takes the initiative to solve Isaiah's problem. Because we read in verse 9, sorry, 6, verse 6, that one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah with a coal from the altar. Now, this was a live coal that he had taken off the altar with a pair of tongs. It's described clearly in the text. And he takes that coal and touches Isaiah's lips with the coal and proclaims to Isaiah, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. So in that moment, God takes the initiative, does for Isaiah what Isaiah cannot do for himself. Isaiah presents himself to God and recognizes his need, and God responds, to Isaiah by saying, don't worry, Isaiah, I'll take care of it. And he touches him and restores his cleanness or takes away the uncleanness or purifies Isaiah from the, that which had ruined him or separated him from God or resulted in his pollution. Now, this has a parallel also in some other things that took place. And, and we, re, we know from the history of God's people, that on the Day of Atonement, live coals of fire were taken into the most holy place. So this would not have been totally beyond Isaiah's awareness, because he would have known about these kinds of things. And so when this happens to him, he probably connects some of those things to realize that something significant is happening, that here this represents God's purifying work in his life. It's also real interesting to notice that there is no mention of any pain to Isaiah. Now, a live coal touching human flesh would certainly result in a serious burn, but that doesn't take place here. And so we get the idea that this is not something that's going to harm Isaiah. This is something that has come to help Isaiah, to purify Isaiah. It doesn't hurt him in any way. In fact, the result is the problem is solved. The problem that Isaiah surfaces earlier here, where he says, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm undone, all of a sudden God has solved that problem. Because now Isaiah stands before God with his guilt taken away, his sin taken away, his, pure, his, his uh, polluted lips purified, and now he's ready to hear the voice of God. And so God speaks up 
and issues that very famous invitation that many of us have heard. Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So God announces to the whole heavenly assembly, who shall I send, who will go for us? And so the whole heavenly assembly stands at the ready, waiting to hear what Isaiah will say, because Isaiah responded to his need earlier when he recognized that he was ruined. And so there was an appropriate response to, to a holy God. Isaiah says, I'm ruined. I, I'm, I'm without hope. I'm without help because my lips are polluted. I'm unclean. And here I stand. What am I going to do? God responds to Isaiah's need by touching him and purifying his uncleanness and making him ready. And now Isaiah stands before God, ready to hear God speak. And so God speaks and asks the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, Isaiah, the man who now stands before God with cleansed lips, responds to God, here am I, send me. You see, Isaiah's lips had been cleansed, and he was ready to go, and his condition had been changed. His guilt had been taken away, his sin atoned for, and now Isaiah could respond to God's voice in a way that he couldn't before, but now that God has, has cleaned him up, we might say, God has prepared him, God has changed his condition, Isaiah is now able to say, here am I, send me. So here we see the divine initiative taken to purify Isaiah, to prepare him so that he can now represent God and be God's prophet to the people, to God's people who needed to hear from God. Now, one of the things we learned from Isaiah that's real interesting here is that Isaiah recognized, because he said earlier that he was ruined, Isaiah recognized that he was a person of unclean lips, Isaiah recognized all of this, and he realized the imminent danger of someone who was undone, who was unclean, who was polluted, standing in the presence of God. He recognized that that was a dangerous place to be. And so that is also true for the people Isaiah was being sent to, that they were in a dangerous place because they too were people of unclean lips. Isaiah had already explained that. And that's why the prophet needed to be sent, is because people needed to hear from God and needed to hear the message that they needed to change their lives. They needed to have God touch them with that live fire of purification, because they too were in serious jeopardy because they could not stand before God if they had polluted lips, if they were undone, if they were unclean. They had to have help. And Isaiah now, by his own experience, is able to say to those people, there is help, there is hope, because God has helped me. He's given hope to me. So it's quite an interesting challenge. And, and I guess before we leave Isaiah, and we want to take a look at another place in, in just a minute after the break, before we leave Isaiah, we should we should really come to grips with this question. Has God ever said to you, whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
Has God ever challenged you to do something for him? Now, now, a lot of times people's first response is, well, I'm no preacher. Well, no preacher is a preacher until God calls. What is God calling you to do? You're not what you might be until you respond to God and allow him to do his work of purification and then commissioning to a mission. God may be trying to get your attention. He may be trying to get your attention today so that you can realize that he's got something for you to accomplish. We, we know we aren't anything in our own strength, in our own being. We realize our frailty. We realize our, our susceptibility to sin. We realize that we have fallen away from God and need God's help. We all get that. We all know that. But God doesn't focus solely on that. He realizes it's so, but what God focuses on is, Isaiah, I can take care of all of that. And that's true for you too. Whatever your excuse, whatever your reason for resisting God's voice in your life, God's call on your life, God is saying right now in the same way he said to Isaiah, I can handle all of that. My question for you is, will you go after I've handled that? And Isaiah, to his credit, he benefited from God's touch, God's cleansing, and then he said, I'm ready, let's go. And he went. So no matter your concern, and, and we all have them, when God reaches out to us and, and says, hey, I would like you to take this project on, or I'd like you to do this for me, or I'd like you to, to go down the street and represent me at, at this meeting, I'd like you to lead a Bible study, I don't know what he might ask you to do. He'll ask you to do what he gives you gifts to do. There's no question about that. That's a different subject. If you want to know about that, read 1 Corinthians 12. Fascinating that God gives us the gifts he expects us to use. The real question is, when we recognize our inadequacy, when we recognize that we are not able to do this thing that God wants us to do, Will we at the same time recognize that the God who calls us is more than able to clean up our lives and equip us to go do that which he has called us to do? You see, a lot of times we just use the excuses and we hide behind them. And I want to say to you, no more excuses. Let's stretch toward God. Don't you want to do that? Can you imagine what might happen if you took that step and said to God, here am I send me. It may not be dramatic. It might be dramatic. I don't know, but it will matter because when God calls, he intends for us to say yes. So I want to encourage you to say yes. And I want you to think about that. In just a minute, we're going to take a, a short break, give you a chance to, to consider all of this, to meditate on what God might be saying to you. And I want to encourage you to approach God through the bias of faith. I'm fond of saying that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm fond of encouraging people to really trust God because he is trustworthy. And I'm delighted when I hear people say, yes, of course, I'll trust God. And that's what I want to encourage you. See, that's what Isaiah did. He found himself in a bad spot. You might be in a worse spot than I can imagine. I, I don't know. But I do know this. There is not a spot that is so bad that God cannot touch you and make it right. It just, there is no place like that. 
you might say, well, God can't, well, God can and wants to. That's God's business, is reaching the people who are polluted, unclean, as Isaiah said, and making them whole, and making them holy. For the purification of God's Spirit touching us can move us in the right direction, and we can then both praise God like the seraphim did and serve God like Isaiah did. The real question isn't, can we? Make sure you got that. The real question isn't, can we? The real question is, will we? God is more than able to handle whatever is in our life that needs handling, whatever that needs cleaning up, whatever we need to know or learn or develop in our skills, whatever it is, God is more than able to handle that for us. The real question is, will we cooperate with his grace and let him do that? Will you hold God at arm's length? Will you stiff arm God? Or will you say, I have absolute confidence that God is trustworthy and he is speaking to me today and calling me to follow him. And I'm going to follow him on the adventure of a lifetime. I'm not going to promise it's going to be easy. It wasn't for Isaiah. If you read the rest of Isaiah's story, you'll find that out. But if God is calling you while we take this break, I want you to seriously say yes to God. And let's pursue how God wants to touch your life and to make you whole so that you can follow him and accomplish more than you could have imagined on the adventure of a lifetime. We'll be right back. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. the cancel culture is determined to destroy our history, bringing violence and terror to city streets. America Out Loud will enhance its own message of love and honor for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio liberty and justice for all. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. 
Welcome back. I'm so glad you're here with us on Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're exploring the dynamics of trusting God, and particularly of trusting God when He reaches out and calls us to something that that might make us a little concerned, like Isaiah. Isaiah was more than a little concerned because he found himself in the presence of God, and he realized he was polluted, he was unclean, and he needed help. But God provided the help. God touched Isaiah, and Isaiah then responded to God's challenge and said to God, here am I, send me. And I hope that's where you are. You have now a willingness to say with Isaiah that you are ready for God to send you. I don't know what he might say to you, but but we need to talk about how does that work in terms of our lives day in and day out, and how do we go forward? How do we understand, how do we deal with the challenges of life when it comes to temptation and it comes to the the possibility, could we be polluted again? How do we deal with with all of the stuff around us and, and how do we manage life in a world that seems to go every which way except God's way? Well, we'll take a look at a few of those ideas. We can't touch on everything that might solve that problem, but we can take a look at Romans chapter eight And I want to read a few verses from there. And again, I'm reading from the New International Version. And we're going to start with verse 12. And it starts with a very intriguing word, therefore. I have a friend who is now with the Lord, and he used to say, whenever you see therefore in the Bible, make sure you look and see what it's there for. Well, in this case, it's therefore to remind us that the Spirit of God has come to us and that we live by the Spirit and we don't have to be susceptible to what most English translations that I've seen refer to as the flesh. And I'm going to read this passage here in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. We want to talk about that a little bit, and I want to suggest another word that you might substitute for this idea of the flesh. But let's look at the, at the text first, and then we'll get back to that and see what this can teach us about how we live with, when God wants to touch us and, and take away our uncleanness, then how do we cooperate with that grace going forward so that we follow him in the way he wants us to? So here we are in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So let's take a look at this passage and see how it is that, that when God touches us and calls us to serve him, how do we maintain that continuing faithfulness and that continuing cleanness before him? How do we, as I like to say, cooperate with grace? Now, it's very interesting to me that in this first verse that we read, it says that we we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh in according 
to live according to it. So we have an obligation, but it's not an obligation to the flesh. Now, here's where I want to suggest that if it might help you understand, it certainly does help me to understand what the scripture is talking about here, when I substitute a word for flesh. Now, this idea of flesh, generally speaking, we understand it's the, it's the, the fact that we live as humans and we are susceptible to the weaknesses and the challenges of, of being human. And, and so we understand that all that comes with, with living in human flesh. It helps me to think of this, when I'm looking at these verses here, to put in the word temptation instead of flesh. So we might say it a little differently in verse 12 that, that we don't owe temptation anything. We don't have any obligation to temptation. Our obligation is to live for God. So we, we don't owe temptation anything. Now, it tells us very clearly using some if-then statements. Now, I remember if-then statements from geometry class. At least that's where I think I heard them. It's been a little while since I was there. Uh, I don't remember a lot about geometry. I remember enough to wish I remembered more now and, and to remember that I'm kind of fascinated by the ideas that I remember from that, but I'm no, I'm no person that you want to talk to about geometry. But I do remember if-then. And the statements were, if this is so, then this will happen. And so when we were working on our problems, we had to understand that, and that would help lead us to a solution. So here in Romans chapter 8, the writer tells us, if you give in to the flesh, or if you give in to temptation, so there's the condition, if you give in to temptation, then you will die. So that's pretty straightforward. If you give in to sin, then that results in uncleanness, and just like Isaiah was concerned, that means you will die. But he says another if-then statement. If by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, you put temptation to death, then you will live. So the solution for us is to cooperate with God's grace and simply have no obligation to temptation. We don't owe it anything. Just put it aside. Or as this passage says, we put temptation to death, because when we do that, then we will live. That's how we cooperate with God's grace, and that's how we live faithfully, because we demonstrate our faithfulness by putting aside those temptations and remaining faithful to God. Now, so think about that a little bit. We should, we should make sure we clarify this idea of temptation. A lot of times people get confused and they think temptation is the sin. And I want to help you realize that that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, every person alive is tempted. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, you don't know the temptations I've faced. Well, I don't. Uh, you don't know the temptations I've faced. We don't know each other's temptations, but we do know that all people are susceptible to temptation. And we all know that when we give in to temptation or yield to temptation, that results in sin. The problem that so many people seem to, to trip over, and maybe it's what keeps them from thinking that, that God can actually do a work of purification in their lives like he did Isaiah, is because they think the fact that they're tempted means they're a sinner. 
please begin to distinguish between the temptation and the sin. If you are tempted to steal, that does not make you a thief until you steal. If you are tempted to lie, that does not make you a liar until you lie. There is a difference between the temptation to do something and the act of doing it. And we need to make sure we understand that. Don't hear me say that being a liar or a thief is okay. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you are tempted to be a liar or a thief, that's not the same as becoming a liar or a thief. And I hope you're neither, okay? So make sure you think about that in terms of the temptations you do face. I don't know what temptation you're faced with. I, I have no idea. But whatever it is, just because you're tempted doesn't make you that sinful person, okay? The temptation is different from the giving in to sin. Uh, John Wesley famously said that sin properly so-called is the willful transgression of the known law of God. Now, I think a lot of people understand that. I think a lot of us kind of resist wanting to face up to that. But what Mr. Wesley's definition is simply saying is that when you knowingly do something that God says you should not do, when you knowingly steal, for example, then you know you have committed what the Bible calls a sin. That's a willful transgression. You purposely, intentionally, with eyes wide open, you stole that whatever it was you stole. And I hope you didn't steal it, but you get the idea. But you're not that thief until you actually take that thing. You're not the thief because you're tempted. You're the thief because you give in to that temptation and you grab that thing and put it in your pocket. So whatever sin you're facing, put that sin aside and don't give in to it. That's what it means when it says, allow the Spirit of God, cooperate with His grace, and put that temptation to death. Put it aside and live for God. And you can do that. You are capable. You are not a victim of temptation. You are susceptible to it, but you're only a victim of it when you give in to it. And we need to rise above that and to realize that God came so that we could be purified just the same way Isaiah was, so that we were not caught up in this cycle of continuing temptation and sin. See, the, the passage that we read goes on to say that, that when we're led by the Spirit of God, when God comes and makes us new, then, then we are no longer slaves, but we're adopted into God's family. Now, anytime the Bible compares slavery with following God ought to get our attention. It ought to rivet our attention because slavery was a big deal in those days. Everybody knew about slavery. It was, it was an awful thing, not defending it, not trying to justify it. I just want to explain that it was a fact of life so people understood. A slave had no choice. They had to do what they were told to do. And when we do what our temptations tell us to do, we become slaves to those temptations. Does that make sense? Think about that. When we give in to our temptations, when we think we have to do what they tell us to do, we become slaves to those temptations. What makes you think those temptations tell you the truth? They don't. They're just trying to lead you astray. 
But in Romans, in this passage here, by contrasting this idea of slavery with this idea of being a child of God, being adopted into his family, the people who were part of the families who were not slaves, they had a choice. They lived their lives freely. They could do what they wanted to do. And they were indeed, as it takes all the way out in that passage, they became the heirs of the household. And we, in the same way, become heirs of God. And we can enjoy the benefits of walking with God and of following him. We're not trapped in having to do what someone tells us to do, like our temptations. We are free to live for God and to God as people with healed and whole hearts. So I want to make sure if you, if you don't miss anything else, don't miss this idea that, that you do not have to give in to your temptations. When you trust and put your faith in God, when you give allegiance to Jesus, when you pledge to follow him and the spirit of God comes to you and makes you clean, you maintain that relationship by walking with him and saying no to those temptations. Now you might say, well, I don't know how to do that. Start with one. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by temptation. Start with one, because when you build on one victory, you will be able to build, build on another one. So, so whatever comes to mind, whatever God helps you with, start with one and build on that because you can live above that. That's the point of Isaiah. That's the point of Romans, that we, before God, can be made whole and holy, and we don't have to give in to all the junk of life. We can live above that. We can. We must. Why wouldn't we want to? So I want to challenge you. You can live that way, and, and when you make those decisions, then the Spirit of God can come and challenge you to a whole different level of living, like Isaiah was challenged. And, and Isaiah responded, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. And that's what I want you to be able to say to God as well. Okay, I'm ready. Let's go. Now, before we finish our time together today, I, I thought it was important that we just take a few minutes to acknowledge that this is Memorial Day weekend. And, and sometimes we forget about these kinds of things. And I think we who are people of faith who understand what it means to trust in God need to, to take these opportunities to give thanks for the gifts God has given us. And clearly, one of the gifts God has given all of us who live in this country, he's given us the gift of liberty. He's given us the gift of living in this nation. There's not ever been a nation like this in the history of the world. And this gift of freedom was God's idea, always has been God's idea. It's very well illustrated by the events of, of the Exodus, when God's people were trapped in slavery in Egypt and then led out of there. God led them out so that they could be free to worship him. And he wanted them to be and he helped them to be, and he has given us that gift of liberty. And a Memorial Day weekend, we remember, we pause to remember that men and women down through history have given their lives so that we could be a free people. When you have your picnic, if that's the way you celebrate on Memorial Day weekend, when you gather with your family, if that's the way you celebrate, remember that you are there free, to do what you want to do. In the same way we contrasted slavery to the privilege of being an adopted son of the king or daughter of the king, 
in the same way you are free because of God's gift of liberty to, to us, you are free because of the sacrifice of many who gave their lives for that. Now, this, this Memorial Day isn't a time to remember our veterans. We appreciate our veterans and we honor them appropriately, but I've been so impressed. I've heard a number of veterans say, no, this isn't our day. This is the day for those who didn't come home. And they are some of the ones who are quickest to point to those men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be free. And we who are Christians should pause to thank God for that because we would not be a free country. We would not be free to worship God if he had not given us this gift of liberty. And recently, I was reading a little bit about the history of our country, and I, I read quite a long story, and we don't really have time to do the whole story here, but a, a story about Abraham Lincoln and the events surrounding the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln took the train and went to, to the Gettysburg battlefield where they gathered for the commemoration for the dedication of that cemetery there, that national cemetery. And he wrestled with the words he would say. They didn't come out right. He wasn't happy with them. He knew he wasn't the featured speaker. There was another speaker there, a man named Everett, Edward Everett, who was a, 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 an amazing orator who could keep an audience spellbound. Lincoln knew the kind of pressure that that, that meant for him. And he just couldn't find the words, but he knew as president, he had to say something. And the crowd listened to Edward Everett make his grand and eloquent speech. And by all accounts, it was absolutely amazing. And it lasted two hours. And he kept the crowd's attention throughout that entire time. And when it was over, they, they cheered thunderously with applause. And the applause went on for a long time. And it was... President Lincoln's responsibility then to speak after that great orator had spoken. And, and he was not at all confident that his speech would be adequate for the occasion. He was only doing it because, or, or so it seems, because he was the president and needed to. But he walked up to the spot on the platform where he was designated to speak. And he began to speak and his voice didn't come out quite right. And it sounded a little strange and, and a little nervous tremor went through the audience because Lincoln's voice did not sound at all eloquent like Edward Everett's had. The president realized the sort of embarrassment he had caused himself and that the crowd had recognized it, but he gathered himself and, and then delivered the speech. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of it as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have concentrated it far above our poor power to add or to detract. 
The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And when President Lincoln finished delivering that address, the crowd was absolutely silent. By contrast to Edward Everett's thunderous applause, you couldn't hear a sound. There was no applause. Lincoln wasn't particularly pleased with his speech when he wrote it. He had no illusions that it would be grand or suitable for the occasion. He returned to his seat. The ceremony continued. And when the ceremony was over, Edward Everett made his way directly to the president. He said to, to the president, Mr. President, your speech. But, but Lincoln interrupted him and, and said, no, Mr. Everett, explain to, to him that we talk about that later because Lincoln did not believe his speech had measured up to the occasion at all. And, and he instead was congratulating Edward Everett on his speech that had been grandly eloquent. Everett listened thoughtfully when Mr. Lincoln was finished, he said simply, Mr. President, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Well, Lincoln was not convinced and he wasn't convinced by the press clippings that he saw later. He just, he just believed that they were there for flattery because you had to say something nice about the president. He was convinced that the speech was a failure. But through an interesting circumstances of, of events, he found himself at the bedside later the next day of a Confederate soldier who had been gravely wounded and who needed his help. And he listened to that soldier talk about that speech and how that soldier so admired what he had said because it rose above the conflict and called people, even who disagreed with President Lincoln, to a higher level of duty and of honor and of sacrifice. And it wasn't until President Lincoln heard that young man in his early 20s talk about that speech that he realized that what he had said had helped the nation and had made a difference. We need to realize that what God calls us to do will help someone somewhere and it will make a difference. And he's hoping that we will say, here am I, send me. So on this Memorial Day weekend, as you consider the story of Isaiah, and as you realize that God really can use you if you're willing to allow him to make you whole, to purify your impurities, if you're willing to cooperate with grace and put temptation aside and walk forward with him, he can use you in ways you might not realize until much later. And he wants to use you. So as you remember that story, as you remember the stories you will hear about 
men and women who sacrificed their lives to preserve God's gift to us. My prayer for you is that you will commit yourself to following in whatever direction God leads you. Because you may be only one person, but you are one person and you can accomplish something for God. And if I can encourage you to do that, I will feel much better about our time together. Because I believe God is looking for an army of people that he can release on the world to bring hope and help and healing to people who are broken and need to hear a good word from God. And he wants to use you right where you are in your context and your responsibilities. So I hope you will have faith. I hope you will have confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I hope you will take that step in his direction and say, here am I, send me. We'll talk some more about this idea of faith next week. So glad you joined us. May God bless you. Amen. Amen.